I would invite you to turn in your Bible to uh, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We've already been reminded of uh, just these precious truths this morning, and and it's just such a wonderful thing to be able to have the clarity of the Word of God to teach us and to inform our our minds. Uh, They get so distorted sometimes by the teaching of this popular thought, but we come to the Word of God and, and... it clarifies and corrects and instructs, and we're just so thankful for that, to be able to do that. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2, we're just introducing this book, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Christ and to be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullness measure. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank You for the clarity of Your Word. We thank You for um, just the, the privilege that we have of being able to come to it and, and it correct our thinking and all of the false doctrines and teachings out there. It may not be easy to understand. It may not be easy to, to digest for us sometimes, but it is clear and we can, we can understand it and we thank You for that. And may we live in light of it. May we live in accordance to this Word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in these first few verses here that I read for us, you see just an introduction to this letter. Paul's writing a letter to the churches, and he's introducing it. But you notice that it's a it's classical Greek style, just very typical. You have he he introduces himself, the author. He introduces his readers, and then. He gives a, a brief a little greeting. You say, that's all fine and, and dandy. It's just a classic Greek style. But there's some that would say, no, well, this is too sophisticated of, of a Greek letter to, for a, a mere fisherman to write. Um, and they would say, well, it, it's too sophisticated. It's over his pay grade, we might say. Uh, his station in life, we would expect it from Paul, but not from Peter. Um, and so they would dismiss this letter as not being in the canon. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be in God's word. It's not inspired. They would say. But I completely disagree with that. I believe F- Peter's fingerprints are all over this. I believe that he did write this. Let me give you a few reasons. First of all, I think that it was recognized by the early church. The early church recognized this as this is the Word of God. This is, it belongs in the canon, and it is inspired. Number two, they over-exaggerate the Greek style. A lot of people uh, were, were speaking Greek at that time, and it, it wasn't uncommon, uh, and it's not that polished. Another thing is there's a, a lot of Semitic expressions here, a lot of Jewish uh, little phrases, and whoever wrote this knows the Old Testament. It was obviously a Jew. And it, I don't believe it's faked. 
I believe that is consistent with what we see with Peter. Also, we need to remember that Peter was uh, a Galilean. He lived in the northern part of Israel. That was the Hellenistic section where the Jews and the Gentiles kind of lived together there. They were separate. The Jews had to be. But, but there was still some interaction, probably a lot more than you would have in, down in Jerusalem. And Peter was a businessman, and so he interacted with them, I'm sure selling uh, his fish and uh, the fish market, and he would interact with probably the other businessmen as well. I believe also a significant factor is that this was written 30 years after Peter was a fisherman. He's not a fisherman anymore. He is a fisher of men. Christ called him out of that lifestyle. And also he had been traveling uh, traveling throughout the Greek world, uh, spreading the gospel. And I'm sure that he became more proficient and more refined in the Greek culture. And um, he did that so that he, because he had he'd given himself to the church, he'd given himself to Christ and to the spread of the gospel. And, and um, he would do all things, as Paul said, to win to win people to Christ. And, and so he is going to do what he needs to do to be able to communicate the gospel more clearly. We would do the same thing. Now, he could have used it, it would be called an amanuensis, uh, a, a little a secretary would come along and maybe helped him to write this or craft this letter. And some believe that it could have been Savanius back in chapter 5 and verse 12. But I believe that, it, remember, Peter denied Christ... But he was also reinstated back into the ministry by Christ. And when he did that, Peter asked, or, or Christ reminded Peter, he said, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes. And, and he said, well, feed my sheep. And he said that three times, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And I believe Peter got the message. And Peter was defined by Christ. He, he was owned by Christ and he obeyed Christ, and I believe he left that fishing culture behind, and I believe he did whatever he needed to do to be able to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by this time, he's old. He's an older man. He, he was mature. He was a stalwart in the faith. He was a pillar of the church. He's a beloved saint. And there's no question in my mind that Peter wrote this, and this is part of the... Uh, scriptures and inspired by the Holy Spirit. He was a father figure to the church. Now, why do I say through, why do I go through all that? Why do I say that? Because the Holy Spirit can take the most common of people. The Holy Spirit can take the most basic of men. Folks, there's, there's hope for us, right? We look at men, there's, there's hope for you. <laughs> the Lord can refine us. There's, there's, um, he can he can refine us. There's a refining process in the in the Christian life, and I'm so glad for that. We don't stay in our old lifestyle, and so we see that with Peter. We see Peter is feeding the the church with this letter. Another thing that I want you to notice about this introduction is that the way Peter um, describes his readers, the way he describes his readers, these believers in Asia Minor. Now, if you were writing a letter to the church in our day, you would how, how would you how would you put it? How would you address the church? 
you'd probably want to be as inclusive as possible, include as many to the, to the church, to all the believers. Peter is just doing just the opposite. It's, I think it's interesting because Peter is uh, exclusive, very exclusive. He, he calls them aliens, scattered throughout all these places. But the real clincher is who are chosen. Now that's real specific. It's real specific. Obviously, Peter is wanting to be clear here. This is for true believers only. Pretenders won't hold up under persecution anyway. They're going to cave. But pretenders may, may not, should not read this book. This is for believers. This is exclusive, much more narrow. He calls them scattered. If you notice, residing as aliens, scattered. The word scattered there would be our word, um, well, it's the word diaspora. It would be our word dispersed, to disperse, to just kind of throw out there. In the Old Testament, the diaspora, the diaspora, when you add the article to it, was a technical term for Israel. Because if you remember back, God says, now, if you disobey me, I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to throw you to the four winds of the earth, basically, four corners of the earth. And that's what he, he did uh, through Assyria and Babylon. They were scattered. They were the diaspora. Um, that would be the technical term. But Peter's not using it in that technical term because there's no article there. He's not specifically talking to Israel. He's talking to the church, but they are still scattered. Why does he call them scattered? Well, the church likes to huddle together, especially in persecution time. But they need to be scattered. Like salt needs to be uh, scattered throughout that meat. It has to be put on that meat to be able to preserve. They still do that in the third world countries, probably even today here in America. We would preserve meat by rubbing salt in that and scattering that salt all over. The same thing has to happen in a culture. That preserving element, the salt, we as, as believers have to be scattered. And so he, he gives some specific places, specific... These are provinces. If you look, Pontius, that would be the northern uh, section, the far northern section. There were some people from Pontius. On the day of Pentecost... When Peter first preached 30 years earlier. Then you have uh, Galatia. That was Paul's area where he planted some church. And Cappadocia, that eastern portion of Asia Minor. And then Asia, that would be the western portion. And that would have been where Paul uh, visited his with his third missionary journey. More on the coast of the Mediterranean. And then you have Bithynia, that northern section uh, uh, right under the Black Sea, essentially. And that, this is the land between Europe and, and Asia. Turkey, uh, modern day Turkey is, it would be where it is today. And, and that's a strategic spot. You're wanting to turn the world upside down. That would be the place to go. And that's where the church was moving into this. By the way, this is part of the seven churches as well that was mentioned in, uh, the book of Revelation. So Peter had a wide, wide variety of, of believers here, but it was very exclusive. He also calls them aliens. Now they reside there, so so it's not talking in the in the physical sense. They probably may, may have gr- grown up there, but uh, he's talking in the spiritual sense. This is this is their they are 
really their residence is in heaven. Their true homeland is where their heavenly father is. They have heavenly roots. And they're strangers down here on this earth. They're foreign foreigners. And I'm sure that's the way they felt. There was persecution coming and they knew that persecution was coming and they probably sensed this distance from the world. They felt that. And so he, uh, he, he communicates that, that they are strangers, that they are aliens. If you look over chapter two and verse 11, he says, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from flesh and flesh. It's appropriate for them to be aliens, to, to be distant. And he's going to emphasize that. But that's a spiritual reality for us believers, isn't it? And if we're going to prepare our hearts for persecution, and persecution, I believe, is going to come to church today. If we're going to prepare our hearts, folks, we need to start thinking like this. That we are aliens. That, that we, are, we need to be, to be scattered. We've got to prepare our hearts to be distinct from the world. We're distinct. And the real clincher, though, is at the end of verse 1, he says, uh, so they're, they're aliens and they're scattered, but they're also who are chosen, who are chosen. Um, that's such an important term, and I'm glad, so glad Peter uses it here. He's identifying his readers from, in relation to their heavenly orientation. Um, the word chosen there is eklektos, elect. Um, it would be to select out, to choose. And I want you to see it in Scripture. We, we first uh, we see it here, but it's also down in chapter 2 in verse 9, if you want to look there. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, chosen race. God chose. Let me show you another one. Titus chapter 2. I believe I have these on the screen. Titus chapter 2. I'm sorry, Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen. Chosen of God, specifically. We are the chosen. becomes a title for the church, really. That's pretty significant. If you go over to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. And he says, um, let me find it here. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you. You're special to us, Paul says, this church in Thessalonica, because God has chosen you. God chosen you. Ephesians chapter 1. These are verses that you, you know, but it, it, it permeates the whole of the, the New Testament. I'm just pulling out a few. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Back down in verse 11, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. So He chose us and set us aside and predestined. This is, this is what's going to happen. If you look over to Acts chapter 13, this is a wonderful verse. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. He says, then the, he says that, then the Gentiles heard this. 
or when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now notice this. They were appointed to eternal life first. God chose them before the foundation of the world. And here's what's going to happen. Um, they were appointed to eternal life. And then they believed in real time, in real life, they believed. That's just, that's common teaching in Scripture that God chose. And at the right time, the Holy Spirit worked in the heart, worked in the mind, and they believed. Let me give you one more. And this is kind of a, kind of a, a jolt. This is a wake-up call. The way Christ was using it. Matthew chapter 24 verse 22. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, the, the sake of the chosen ones, the chosen, the chosen, those days will be cut short. He's going to cut it short. Because the elect are are there. They are God's people and, and He's going to preserve them. He's going to cut those days short. The elect, the chosen. God chose people out of among all the peoples of the world to belong to Him. He selected them out of the world for holiness. He forgave their sins. He moved them from darkness to light, from unbelief to belief. He moved them from loving sin to loving righteousness. And it's just common, clear teaching throughout the, the New Testament. And it's a crucial truth. And I go through all this because I know that you know, in spite of how clear it is in Scripture, this is not taught. It's not taught. In fact, it's a, it's a controversial doctrine that we, we see today. And it's even hated. People hate this doctrine. God is sovereign, they say. And we'll, we'll allow Him have, to have has sovereignty. But when it comes down to the, the uh, uh, salvation of man, He's not sovereign. We're going to hold back His sovereignty. It's just inconsistent. God is sovereign even over the hearts of men. And he can quicken a heart. But they don't want man's will violated. And so they, they conjured up this false teaching. And it's based upon pragmatism. Because it's not based upon the Word of God. Not based upon the Word of God at all. There's a couple of false teachers. First of all, Pelagius, back in the 300, 400 A.D. And um, he began to preach this free will uh, doctrine uh, that man is not enslaved to sin at all and he can choose uh, to obey the law without God's quickening power, without the Holy Spirit working in person's life. And he was labeled a heretic by Augustine. And number two, you see another guy is Jacob Arminius. Now he's a Dutch theologian and he kind of softens it and, and he gives it a little bit more theological depth, but but it's still... Inconsistent doctrine. We would call this semi-Pelagian. And the church in both situations saw this doctrine for what it was and they excommunicated these men out of the church. It doesn't belong in the church. It's false doctrine. It's inconsistent with Scripture. But Jacob Arminius, he had disciples. 
And out of those disciples came a whole system of thought. Um, and here's, here's what it is. Let me give you a, a brief synopsis. This is a warning. This is what's being taught, popular teaching today, that, that man is, is not totally depraved. They're not enslaved to sin. That Christ's choosing of man is done so um, in a way that does not violate man's heart, kind of twist foreknowledge that actually God chose instead of man or instead of man choosing instead of God choosing. Christ paid the penalty for the sins of every single person that ever lived, meaning then that if that person were to die, they shouldn't go to hell because those sins are paid for, right? But they have to pay for them. Inconsistent. They would believe in unlimited atonement. There's no effectual calling. God's grace can be resisted. It can be rejected. And, that, and God is just setting up there, wringing His hands in frustration. They, they also teach if you do have salvation, you do gain this salvation, you can lose it. And they take this system of thinking and they read it into Scripture or, or they reinterpret Scripture to mean something that it doesn't mean and they kind of blend it. Um, and they distort Scripture. But it's common teaching today. It's very common. I like what John MacArthur says. He, he says, this teaching, this Arminian teaching, makes man sovereign, not God. It gives man undue credit and takes away the glory away from God. And it, it assumes that man can do any of these things. It assumes that man is, is free to be able to seek after God. But the case is, is man is enslaved to sin and he doesn't seek after God. Unless the Lord prompts that heart. Here's what we teach. Let me lay this on the, script, uh, the screen here. Here's what we teach. That man is totally depraved. He is enslaved to sin. He cannot seek after God unless God quickens that heart. Unless the Holy Spirit grabs that heart and brings him in. There's an unconditional election. That means that there's no conditions put on God. God's will is free to choose as He chooses, as He wants. There's a definite atonement that Christ specifically died, came down and died for the those who would believe in Him, for the elect, for the chosen. It's a deliberate, intentional atonement. And you have irresistible grace that God's calling on your life. God's call is, is going to be responded to by faith. It's not resisted. And then also you have the perseverance of the saints. That true believers, they're going to persevere. They're going, their eternal uh, destiny is secure. Now Peter affirms this. Go back to our passage. Peter affirms that this is God's choice here. Who are chosen. Are chosen. It's not that they chose. It's, it's they were chosen. And I'll get into that in a little bit. The question is, is how do we, how can we tell if God has worked in a person's life? How can we tell if we are the chosen, right? Everybody wants to be, it sounds pretty arrogant. I know. We're the chosen. How do we know? How do we know if we are the chosen? How do we know if we are chosen? How do we know if we should read this book and, and prepare our hearts? 
He gives us some indication here. There's three prepositional phrases that are connected to this word chosen. It says, who are chosen, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So according to, that's the prepositional phrase, who are chosen according to the uh, foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to obey God and be sprinkled with His blood. There's three prepositional phrases that are tied to the choosing there. And I want to go over these, and we'll do this quickly. All three of these uh, points here are essentially just the work of the Trinity. And they all have their special, unique role that they play in the redemption of man. That's what Peter gives us here. Now, here's what I want you to see. You should see it on the screen there. Peter gives us three aspects of God's work in the believer's life that leave identifying marks of being chosen. Now, let me say that again. It's very important. Peter gives three aspects of God's work. So God's working in the heart of man, in the believer's life. But this work, it leaves identifying marks. Identifying marks. Distinctions. That God has been there. That God has worked. That God has chosen. That's what we see here. This is a little... Introduction, the first two verses. Now, let's go through these. Number one, believers are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. That's the source. God does the choosing. God the Father. I, I love that all three, all three um, persons of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. Isn't that wonderful news? Isn't that good to know that? God does the choosing. And he does it he, according to the foreknowledge, his foreknowledge. Now, what the uh, Arminian doctrine would teach was, is this. Is, this is just a, uh, a premonition that kind of God sees what's going to happen. And, and so he, he chooses based on what's going to happen. Well, that's just foolish. That's inconsistent with the character, the very character of God. He doesn't just know things are going to happen. They don't happen unless he decrees them to happen. It's not just foresight. It's not just this supernatural knowledge of the future. You say, well, what does the knowledge mean? Foreknowledge. What does the knowledge mean? It means an intimate relationship. And that's consistently the way it's used in Scripture. An intimate relationship. And we go back to the Garden of Eden. We see in Genesis that Adam knew his wife. Now, he knew his wife. Now, we know that that's more than just a, an acquaintance, right? Why? Because babies are born. You have Cain and Abel and Seth and all those other children. This is more than just, uh, I knew him or I know him. Just in an acquaintance or a, a casual way. This is a pretty intimate knowledge, right? The way it's used. Go over to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 17. I want you to see... Just as uh, we won't look at all of these, I put some of them on the screen, but we uh, I do want you to see this one. Exodus chapter thirty-three and verse seventeen. Just so so you know how it's used and how it's twisted by the other side to make it say something it doesn't say. The Lord said to Moses, so God is talking to Moses. He says, "I will do these this thing 
of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Not just I'm acquainted with you, but I know you intimately. I know you by name. Moses, look, I'm going to get rid of these people. And we'll start something with you. And Moses says, no, no, don't do that. And he begins to uh, talk to God. And and God says, okay, I'll I'll do it. I'll do the way you, you say. Because I know you. I have that loving, intimate relationship. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, it says the same thing. For I formed you, before I formed you, I knew you, Jeremiah. Amos chapter 3, verse 2, uh, God foreknew Israel. And just that he didn't just foreknow, he chose Israel and he de- decreed that Israel was going to be his people. He was going to have an intimate relationship with that nation. Let me show you one other way that it is, is used. Well, if we go back to First Peter, First Peter 1, verse 20, you see it used here uh, of Christ. And for he was foreknown, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was foreknown before the foundation. That is, has to be more than just, I saw, he's foresight. Has to be an intimate relationship. It's talking about Christ, the Son, and the Father knowing Him. Matthew chapter seven. Let me give you another one. Matthew chapter seven, and verse um, twenty-two. And again, this is a harsh words coming from Christ, but this is a, a stark reality, and we need to understand the way this word is used. Matthew chapter seven, verse twenty-two uh, says this. Better get to Matthew. Just one second. Matthew chapter 7. He says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I, this is Christ, I will declare to them, I never, what? Knew you. I didn't know that you were going to exist. I didn't have that kind of foresight. No, I didn't know you. There was no intimate knowledge. There was no relationship with you. There's nothing there. See, he says, depart from me for I, uh, you who practice lawlessness. I didn't know you. That's a significant relationship. In John chapter 10, it just pulls it all together. In John chapter 10, I love this. This is, again, teachings of Christ. John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. I'm not just acquainted with my sheep. I know my sheep. I have a loving relationship with my sheep. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. My own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, that intimate relationship, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There's a closeness there. There's an intimacy there. That's the way that's, that word is used. And that's, that's what is talked about in First Peter. If you go back, First Peter chapter 1, that's what Peter is talking about. His for determining, determining beforehand that there's going to be a loving relationship with these people. And that makes them distinct from the world. And I believe that's a distinguishing mark. Now, you've got to follow this. 
a distinguishing mark of those who are chosen, love God. They have a loving relationship with God. God started it. He taught us how to love, but we have, we reciprocate that love. We have a loving relationship with God. That distinguishes us from the world, folks. The world doesn't love God. The world doesn't. Um, let me just say, if a person doesn't love God here, why do they think they would want to be in heaven? What would be the draw to heaven? To live with God, a person you don't love. God gives us a love for Himself. There's an intimate relationship there. If you are chosen by God, you're one who loves God. Now that's pretty heavy. But that's what Peter is saying. According to the foreknowledge of God. Number two, believers are chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, Peter says. By the means of the Spirit. It's the working of the Spirit. And this is referring to the the work of sanctification, the the work of holiness in a person's life. There's two ways that's done. Immediately at the time of of, uh, conversion, he, uh, he justifies that person. And so that person then stands before God as pure, justified, cleansed. Before God, with, without spot, without any kind of sin, because we're placed in Christ. But then there's an ongoing work of sanctification, the process of making a person more holy. The word holy there means just set apart, right? Distinct, distinct from the world, set apart. Let me show you how it's used in Acts chapter 15. This is a precious verse. Acts chapter 15 and verse... Um, Verse 7, this is Peter again speaking. He says, after there, were, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the hearts, testified to these to them, giving them the Holy Spirit. So they have the Holy Spirit now. And He's beginning to work in their life, just as He also did to us. That's a distinguishing mark in the church that the Holy Spirit was on them, working. And He made no distinction between them and us, the Jews and the Gentiles. And here, here's the, the little phrase, cleansing their hearts by faith. The Holy Spirit working in their hearts. He cleansed them by faith. That's that ongoing. There's an immediate faith, believing in Christ, but there's also an ongoing faith, and it's a a cleansing faith. I love that. That that is so important for us to understand, especially in light of the persecution and preparing our hearts for, for persecution. This cleansing faith, this honesty before God, it yields strong convictions. Lord, you know what I believe. You know who I am. You know what I stand for. Now help me to be distinct from the world. And I think it produces that, that conviction and that distinction from the world. It produces a strength to be able to stand. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The distinguishing mark of those who are chosen, the believers, are that they are being made holy. Um, and they desire holiness. 
Those who are chosen desire holiness. If you have no interest in being holy, if there's no sanctifying work evidence in your life, then you have to wonder if the Holy Spirit is there because He is going to produce fruit. He is going to produce this cleansing faith. I think the Holy Spirit will will work. Now, let's think about this. This is where the sparks fly. Remember what Jesus said, you're going to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. The Holy Spirit then is producing righteousness in our life. He is causing us conviction to be able to stand against the world. And at that point, that righteous point where the world faces that righteousness, that's where the sparks are going to fly. That's where the persecution is going to happen. It's the Holy Spirit that that has to work in that heart and produce that kind of faith. And if that faith is not there... If that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is not there, you're not going to be able to stand. If you don't, if there's no holiness, folks, there's probably not going to be any persecution anyway. You're going to be just like the world. You're going to be like Peter, who is trying to fit in. He's just warming himself by the fire. Oh, I don't know that man. He denies denies Christ. Foreknowledge. There's the foreknowledge of God, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And let's just number three. Go back to our passage. Believers are chosen to obedience. Believers are chosen to obedience with the blood. Now, look at this little phrase. It says, to obey Jesus and be be sprinkled. It's a, a more literal translation is that um, we are chosen, chosen unto obedience and sprinkling with the blood. Uh, That doesn't read well in English, but here's what it's communicating. When Jesus talked of of His blood, He was talking about the the sign of the new covenant. He says, the new covenant in my blood. And it's an act or it's the seal of the new covenant was His blood. And it's talking about ownership. So we have... have, uh, We have an obedience there to Christ, unto Jesus, obedience unto Jesus, and the sprinkling of the blood. It's one concept. And here's the deal. Christ, through His blood, He owns us in this new covenant with Him. We are owned by Him, and therefore we submit ourselves to Him. There is obedience. It's one idea. And that's so important. Because I believe that and a distinguishing mark, folks, of the believer is that Jesus is Lord of their life. Jesus is Lord. We don't make Him Lord. He just is Lord. We simply obey. We simply submit to His Lordship. When a believer trusts in Christ, he is not just accepting the benefits of his death. He is submitting to His rule over his life. That's what it means. And if you want to sum up the whole of Christianity, what is it? It's the Lordship of Christ. If you want to sum up salvation, it's just submit to Christ. It's bow the knee and at some point every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The distinguishing mark of a true believer, those who are chosen by God, is that they submit to the Lordship of Christ. So you have three, three elements here. And these three things, I believe, set us apart from the world. These are, these are what makes us aliens. This is what makes us uh, strangers, foreigners, even in the land where we grew up. 
And we become more and more distinct as time goes by. Because of that, relationship with God becomes stronger and more distinct. And because of that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, we saw it in Peter's life. And that submission to the Lordship of Christ, they all give evidence that that we are chosen. We are chosen. If we're going to prepare our hearts for persecution, uh, we must see ourselves, folks, from the heavenly perspective. Not the earthly perspective. We have to see ourselves as, I'm distinct from the world. I'm chosen by God. We we know the sparks are going to fly, but that's just the way it is. This is the reality of our life. And what do we need from that? We need grace. Look at the last verse of verse 2. The last section of verse 2. He says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. If persecution is going to come, if their sparks are going to fly, we need grace. God's grace. A wonderful introduction. Wonderful introduction. I'm afraid, though, that the church is not distinct from the world. I'm afraid that the church has gotten too comfortable here on this earth. And this earth now is our home. And we don't see past the sky. We don't see God in all His glory. We've gotten too comfortable. When we've gotten no uh, comfortable and no distinction from the world, we're not gonna, there's not going to be any persecution there. We're going to be like Peter, like I said, comforting ourselves by the fire, denying Christ, I'm afraid. How do we apply this? Let me just apply this in a couple of ways. Number one, this is humbling. If God has worked in your life, out of all the billions of people that have ever lived, God chose you out and, and, and shared the gospel with you and the Holy Spirit quickened that heart and you turned. Folks, that is humbling. Profoundly humbling. Life-changingly humbling. And then number two, just by way of application, it's glorifying. It's glorifying to God. Man gets no credit at all. God gets all the glory. To God be the glory. It's His work of salvation. His redemption of man. He chose us out. Just think about that. How special of a position you are in as chosen. And how glorifying to God. He gets all the praise. He gets all the glory. Folks, to prepare our hearts for persecution, we have to first examine our hearts. Peter knows that. He's pointing these things out. He wants self-examination. Am I chosen? Do I have that intimate relationship with God? Is the Holy Spirit working in my life? Am I submitted to the Lordship of Christ? We have to ask those questions. But then when we say, yes, yes, I see the Lord's evidence in my life. I see these marks. Then then we are humbled and we just praise God, don't we? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank You for your, Your precious gift. It is a gift, Lord. It is not our works. It's nothing from us. We, we did nothing. This was all done before the foundation of the world, before we were even born. All we can do is praise You and, and give glory to You for what You've done. And, and we live a life of humility and submission to Your Son. Lord, we thank You. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.